Greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. We're now in lesson 15 in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. In verse 1 we read, And Adam knew his wife Eve. Adam knew his wife Eve. Now, the word knew is a very, very profound word, so I'd like to, actually it is a concept, an idea, uh, a greater understanding than just the mere uh, facade of the word itself. So I'd like to cover uh, a little bit more details about it. And in this case, we're talking about a word that has far greater than just mere knowledge in terms of facts, but it has to do with everything that, has, that uh, refers to the mind of man, to the emotions of man. In other words, it has to do with the, inter, uh, with the intimate terminology for sexual, for social, for emotional, for spiritual intercourse. And so the knowledge is on many, many levels. It is a very intimate knowledge, a very profound knowledge, and it's not speaking, generally this word is not speaking when it is referred in the Bible in many cases, like in this case, it is not referring to a superficial uh, knowledge. Obviously, this is talking about something much more intimate than that. And God uses this word in a very, very profound manner in many places. In Genesis 18, for example, in verse 19, when Abraham is talking to God and God is on his way to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, he thinks in essence to himself, and he's saying about uh, Abraham in his own mind, but obviously later on Moses is recording those uh, thoughts, not that Abraham knew what uh, God was thinking at the time, and maybe he did. But here God is saying about Abraham, he says, shall I hide anything that I'm going to do from Abraham? In other words, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Am I going to hide it from him, or should I tell him about what I'm going to do? You see, that's speaking about a very intimate knowledge between very, very close and intimate friends, because God and Abraham were very, very close to each other. And it was not just a matter of knowledge, much more than that. And so he says, shall I hide anything from Abraham since I know him, that he will command his sons to walk in his, in his path and in his ways, his sons and his sons' sons. In other words, I have such an intimate knowledge of this person as a dear friend, as an intimate friend. Can I really hide my plans from him? Things that, in essence, also affect him. If it had no impact on him and no effect on him, maybe in that case there was no need to tell him. And so he's using this word, I know, in a very, very intimate manner. And then in Genesis 22 and verse 12, after he asked him to sacrifice his son, in essence, just to see exactly how far he is willing to go in totally giving not only Isaac, but giving himself in the process, in giving Isaac, in sacrificing Isaac, or in the willingness to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham was willing to give himself his future, his hope, his dreams, his very emotions, everything that Isaac meant to him. So it was far more than just even sacrificing Isaac. And so after he went through the experience where he reached, in essence, almost the ultimate destiny of the death of Isaac, which was a sacrifice, as God asked him to do, basically Abraham now is very well known to God. And so God knows Abraham to the ultimate level. And so he says to Abraham that he does not have to go ahead with the sacrifice because now I know. 
In other words, now I really know you all the way through and through. I know how far you are willing to go in serving me, in trusting in me, in putting your faith in me. So it is an extremely profound and intimate knowledge. And this is what God is seeking and searching for. Far more than just the superficial knowledge of people or about people. And so he knows him very well. And then Genesis 45 and verse 1 we read that when Joseph was going to expose himself in essence to his brothers, up to now he was hiding his identity, in other words his brothers didn't know who he was, he knew who they, were, who they are, but he, they didn't know who he was. And so he was going to introduce himself to them, not only as the ruler of Egypt, but in a far more intimate way. And it was not just to tell them who he was, but to merge back with them, to integrate with them, to create that bond and intimacy that in the past they did not have because of their envy against him. But now they were going to create a very profound and intimate bond between them. And so we read that no one was, was with Joseph when he became known to his brothers, far beyond just mere knowledge of all. You are Joseph. But it was a bonding of their emotions, of their feelings. They repented. They poured their, their emotions. The both, all of them actually. Joseph began by crying and weeping because he knew the whole story. They were not fully aware of it. And now they too were crying and they were weeping on each other's shoulders. And so the knowledge now between Joseph and his brothers was a very intimate knowledge. In Exodus 33 and verse 17, when Moses pleaded with God, in essence saying, look, we're very close friends, but so would you please show me some of your glory? In other words, I want to know you more intimately than I do know. Get much closer to you. And so God says, yes, I will do it, because you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. What does it mean when God says, I know you by name? Is it just, I know that your name is Moses? No, it's far more than that. He knows Moses, and he wants to know every single one of us extremely intimately, in every way, to the depth of our being. He wants to know our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings. He wants to know what we do under heavy circumstances which are against us. Are we willing at that point also to say, your will be done, not mine? Are we willing to go all the way to the end? Or is it just a partial knowledge? And beyond that, we do not go further. And so it says, I know you by name. Therefore, I am willing to show you my glory. Because I want to have a much deeper intimate relationship with you. And so it was a very intimate knowledge. And in Daniel 12 and verse 32, in this case, it's speaking about the people of God, the people who serve God, who love God, who are willing to sacrifice their life for God, who are not willing to tolerate wrong ideas, who are not willing to compromise with wrong ideas, who are not willing, like the others, to go after other gods, to go after other doctrines, to go after other teachings, to go after other men. But it says that the people who know their God very intimately and therefore have absolute faith in Him, then know that even if they have to go to their death, like the three friends of Daniel, when they were faced with a fiery furnace, they knew God so well 
that they could withstand the greatest man at the time, the emperor Nebuchadnezzar. And they said that we know that our God can deliver us. We have no doubt whatsoever about it because we know him intimately. And we believe in him. And we have trusted him. And we would worship him until the end. Even if it means our own death. Because we know what comes after death. And that knowledge, intimate knowledge, made it possible for them to go all the way to the end. Into the fiery furnace. And so in Daniel 12.32, it speaks about the people of God in his generation, in our generation, the people that know God, they will never compromise the faith, but they would go all the way. And in Matthew 7.23, Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples, the ones that followed him all the way to the end, and the ones that knew about him, knew something about him, believed in him partially, but were not willing to go all the way. And so they have a form of a relationship with him, a facade relationship with him, a knowledge of the head, but not knowledge of the heart. And so he told them when they came to him, after they said, Lord, Lord, we've done all those things in your name. Oh yes, you had a partial relationship with him, with me, but you really didn't know me all the way to the end. Your faith was not totally in me. You did your own thing. You believed your own thoughts. You followed your own doctrines. You just wanted to have that good feeling of having a relationship with God. And therefore he told them, I don't know you. Even though you claim to know me, I don't know you. Because you were not obedient to my law. And it is through the obedience to the law of God, every single one, every single word that proceeds out of his mouth that is applicable to us, only through that we will know God, only through that God can know us. And so when the word of God, when the law of God, when the command of God came to Abraham, for example, you go and sacrifice your son, Abraham says, no way will I do it. That's against the law. He was willing to go all the way and obey God, no matter what, because he knew God. And he knew that God is righteous. And he knew that God will never say to him or ask him or request of him anything that is wrong. And even if he would go all the way to the end and will have to sacrifice his son, he knew that God can resurrect his son. And so he had no, no doubt whatsoever. And so the knowledge was totally and intimate. And there was no problem there for him to go all the way. And so this is the knowledge that we're talking about that, uh, that Adam knew his wife Eve. It's very intimate knowledge. In John chapter 7 verses 29, 20, uh, 28 and 29, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Some of them are genuine disciples, some of them are partial. Uh, in other words, friends for nice weather, but not when things go wild or wrong or harsh or the other way. We call it the merry-weather friendship. So he's speaking to all the disciples and he's speaking about his father. He says about his father, you really don't know him, but I know him. You claim that you know God. But you, if you really knew God, you would have known me. But he says, you don't know him, but I know him. See, there are many people who know about God. Oh, they read the Bible. They can read it from A to Z. They know many facts there, but they don't have that intimate knowledge that fills you with faith, with loyalty, with absolute obedience, no matter what. And so they just know about God, and that's as far as they are willing to go, not beyond it. And so many know about God, and they do not have an intimate relationship with Him because of that. And that 
the, the very few only know God and they are the ones that have a very intimate relationship with him and it's quite a big difference there between knowing about God and between knowing God and Jesus Christ said I am the truth in other words it's not only that you are reading the Bible and you find out about the truth you have to develop an intimate relationship with me not just intimate knowledge or intimate uh, understanding or comprehension of information and facts but you have to develop an intimate relationship with the ultimate word which is God himself and so he tells them you shall know the truth that is if you really know the truth not just know about the truth if you know the truth if you shall know the truth the truth shall make you free because I am the truth if you really know me you will have freedom freedom from fear freedom from stress freedom from worries freedom that things will go wrong you would know that God will take care of you you are in his hands and even if you go to the grave you still don't know that you are in his hands and you don't have to worry about anything but being human and carnal we'd rather rely on human facts or facts that we see all around us in bits and pieces of information and knowledge and therefore we lose sight of God just like Peter he saw Jesus Christ walking in the water and he asked him master if it is really you because I don't know that it is you the intimate knowledge was not there at that point so if it is really you ask me give me the permission to walk on the water just like you do and then I'll believe you then I would know that it is you and that was a problem that Peter had at that time and what was the consequence so he began walking but then facts knowledge reality said to him no you cannot walk on the water and immediately he began to sink why because he really did not know his master as he should have known if he did he would have known he would never sink regardless of all the facts that were all around him because what is impossible with man it is possible with God and the people that know that that know God that know this reality have no problem following him all the way to the end even when things seem to be so contrary and so that's what he told him and yet he did not really know him and he had to learn the hard way so there are those who develop an intimate knowledge of God and Christ and his word and they become one with him and they never depart it's when our knowledge of God our knowledge of our friends our knowledge of the truth is only partial and it's not intimate and it's not profound it is under these circumstances that we forsake God and word and friend and truth in John 17 and verse 6 Christ said to his disciples in essence he's speaking to the Father but his disciples are listening so he's really speaking to them also that they would understand what he's saying to the Father and he said in verse 6 I have made known your name in a very intimate way through the signs through the wonder through his own personality through his own love and affection through his own willingness to, to give of himself in many ways he had made known the Father to them he had made known his nature his character the depth of his truth of his love toward humanity and his willingness to sacrifice his own son and so said I have made known your name unto them in verse 7 
And he says, and the disciples knew that all that you gave is from you. All that you gave me is from you. They knew it. They believed it. It was a very deep knowledge and understanding. As in the case of Peter and Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ asked him, Peter, whom do you say that I am? In other words, if you really know me, who am I? And Peter answered, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus Christ replied, Peter, I tell you the truth. You did not say that because a man revealed it to you. It was not a superficial knowledge that comes from somebody else. But because my father himself revealed it to you, that's why you knew who I am. That's why he had that intimate knowledge and understanding. While others were all confused. Some said he was Jeremiah. He was Elijah. He was the prophet. In other words, they knew bits and pieces of information and knowledge. And so they knew about him. But they did not know him. And the knowledge that Peter had was an intimate in nature. In verse 25 of uh, chapter 17, the book of John, Christ continues, My righteous Father, the world does not know you. They don't know his nature. They don't know his law. And there are many in our midst to this very day that do not know his law. And more than that, they hate his law. As soon as they hear about the law of God, they resent it. Because the carnal mind that is an enemy of God does not like the law of God and is not subject to the law of God, reacts in that manner. And so he says, My righteous Father, the world does not know you. That's why they're in rebellion to the, against the law of God. But I know you. And he proved his knowledge of God by total obedience to his commandments all the way to the end. And he says, And I have made them know your name and will continue to make them know to this very moment and into the future. For those who are willing to go far beyond the facade of knowledge, but into the total intimacy of knowledge, where it becomes just like the total intimacy that should be there in the sexual union, where everything is known to each other, there is no hiding. Total involvement of mind and body and emotions and feelings and passions and desires, total integration, that's the knowledge that we're talking about. So it's a very profound word, and that's why we need to spend, spend time on it. And not read the Bible as a facade knowledge, just superficial knowledge, but go very, very, very deep into very every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God or that God caused to be writ, written or recorded. That's how we get to know God in a very intimate manner, and that's how we develop tremendous faith in Him and trust and loyalty. And then we will not have to be in that category of people that our God will tell or say about us, when I come back, will I have faith? Will I, have see, will, I, will I see faith among men? Will there be any faith in my disciples? Well, people that do not know him are not going to have faith. Those who do not know his word very deeply and profoundly are not going to have faith. But those who obey his voice, just like the example of the disciples who asked Jesus Christ, increase our faith. And he did not even say, okay, I'm going to do it. He just gave them an example about the servant that just did what his father, what his, uh, that is his master told him. And that's as far as he went. In other words, shallow obedience. But not very deep, not very profound, not going over and above and beyond. Because the Lord demands not only 
the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law in obedience, total intimate obedience. In other words, when God commanded to love him, he says, you love me with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And if our obedience to the law of God is not done in that way, and all of us are extremely deficient in that to one degree or the other, it is not real obedience, total obedience. And so when they say, increase our faith, he gives them the example of the servant that only did what he was supposed to. And he says, should the master, he told them, should the master thank him for it? Of course not. For the simple reason is that when the master goes, all, in other words, when the servant receives the command and he goes over and above and beyond, then the master will thank him for it. Because he did. Did it from the heart. Not just because he was being paid for it. Or because... He was supposed to, or because of bread that he wanted. No your motives. And so the total knowledge that God wants from us is very profound. In Revelation chapter 2, and uh, chapter 3 also, this Christ is, is speaking to all of his people in many generations, and he's using those seven churches symbolically, for that, he tells every single one of them, I know your work. It is a very intimate knowledge of the works that we do because of what is in the heart. And just like Adam knew his wife Eve, so must we know God and he must know us. So he can tell us, I know you, instead of telling us, I don't even know you. Because you are lawless, disobedient to my law. We never want to be, we never want to be found in that attitude where we appear before our master, our judge, naked, without the garments of righteousness, with resentment in our heart toward his law, his nature, his mind, his character. We must know God through his word, through his law. That's how he knows us. And that's how he tested the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. And he said that he made them go through all these trials so that he would know them, whether they would obey him or not, whether they would trust in him or not, whether they would follow him all the way or not. And all of them, with the exception of two, proved that they did not. Therefore, all of them died and never made it to the land, with the exception of their children, all those who were under 20, who had a better knowledge of God and followed him all the way to the land of Israel, to the land of promise. So, when we read a word like that, when we read any word in the Bible, let us go deeper and deeper and deeper into the meaning of everything. In doing so, we develop tremendous excitement for the Word of God and fascination. Instead of just saying, Oh, how am I ready? I heard it before that. Let's go to something else. And having all these itching ears to hear something new. Let's go deeper. That's where you find the gold and the diamonds, not on the surface. And that's the reason why we go very deep, very profoundly through the law and the word of God. And the reality is the overwhelming majority of human beings, even though they claim to know the law of God, they really know very little about it. They just know the facade of it. They know about it. They don't know it. And so we're trying to go far and deeper beyond that. So we can have a much deeper knowledge and understanding of the law of God. And therefore, with God himself, that he may tell us, when the time comes, I know you. And so we read about Adam and Eve in verse 1 again. 
And Adam knew his wife Eve, that is Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. At this point, as time went by, people departed from the knowledge of the truth, not really knowing God, began to invent all kind of fables, all kind of ideas. And to this day, there are many in our midst who believe in all those lies and fables. And you know what uh, the Apostle Paul told Timothy about those kind of fables? In Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he said, But reject profane and old wise fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness, not foolish information. And many people are so deeply engrossed with that. And so they begin to believe all those lies. Now, many ancient peoples, disobedient to the law of God, cut off from God, having no knowledge of God, in essence, as in Romans we read, chapter 1, that God gave them a reprobate mind because they have rejected the knowledge of God. They did not want to know Him intimately. They began to invent all kinds of fables about everything that they had known in the past. And one of their fables, uh, we shall read in these uh, scriptures here in later on in chapter 6, where they began to believe all kinds of uh, lies. One of them is that uh, when, uh, when Cain was born, he was already a man and he was speaking and walking and all these kind of foolish things. So the terminology is, I have acquired a man from God, basically means a, a, a male because at this point, still the Hebrew does not have words for baby or little child. Now all they have is male and female. You see? And male is ish, or man. And woman is isha. And those that were born after them also were called male and female, ish, isha. And then later on, they were given, uh, when language developed, uh, specific names to indicate the age and then you have baby and child and little child and, and teenager and so forth. Uh, teenager itself is, is a recent phenomenon. It was non-existent in the past. And that's all it means here. And so she said, I have bought a man from the Lord. In other words, I have acquired. And there is something very interesting here. Where she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And the word Lord here is the... As many people call it, YHVS, VA. Uh, there are many ways of saying it. You know, that is many ways in the mind of man, not necessarily in the mind of God. It's Yehovah in Hebrew. Uh, Jews don't pronounce that word because it is a, they call it the Shema Meforash. In other words, uh, the very explicit uh, name of God. And so they don't want to use it because they, they are afraid of profaning the name when God never told them Never told them, don't use my name. He just told them, don't use my name in vain. But man always adds and diminishes from the law of God. Contrary to the law of God, as Moses said, this is the word of God that I give you, and you do not add to it, and you do not diminish from it. But people want to do their own thing. That's because they really don't know God. And so, here she's saying that she actually knew the name of God, which apparently later on as time went by, people lost that name, or the, the knowledge of the name, the intimate knowledge of this name, to the point that when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were walking with God, they did not know him by that name. Why did not reveal his name to them? I don't know that, but in, Je in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2, he's telling Moses that by my name, Yehovah, or those who cannot pronou pronounce uh, Ye, they, they put it J, 
and so everything that is here becomes J in English. And I, uh, that's something I really don't understand why. Why can't people say Ye, uh, but they have to say J. And so say Jehovah, Jerusalem, Josiah. Everything is J, J, J instead of Ye. And that doesn't make sense at all. But anyway, the, she says that I have acquired men from the Lord, that is from Jehovah. And as I said before that, every time, generally without uh, exception, actually there are a few exceptions in terms when the word Adon, which means master, is there, uh, another name of God. But in almost every single case where you see the name Lord, you know that it means Jehovah, or some would say Jehovah. And it's not Yahweh, it's Yehovah, as I mentioned that before. And so she said, I bought a man of the Lord. I've acquired uh, someone from him. And in that sense, she also saw a measure of uh, reconciliation between her and God. As later on, you remember what the Apostle Paul is saying about women. If they're obedient, they shall be saved in childbearing. You see? They're going to have a sort of a reconciliation to God because now they're bearing a future son of God. And there is a measure of reconciliation there uh, with God. And so she's very glad to have that relationship with God, at least partially restored, that she says, I have acquired a man from God. In other words, God did not totally reject me, even though I initiated this whole process of uh, being cut off from God and caused even Adam to follow in my footsteps. And so she's saying, I have bought a man from God. I have acquired a man from God. And here we read that it says that uh, she, she conceived and then she bore a child. But then when we go to verse 2, we continue to read, then she bore again. In Hebrew it says, and she added this time his brother Abel. And it's a very interesting terminology because you don't know at this point whether it is a son that is born, let's say, a year later or whether he was just born a few minutes after the first one. Because in his case, it does not say that she, that she uh, conceived and gave birth. It just says that she just gave birth also. And she added to give birth to his brother, uh, Hebel, in Hebrew, Abel in English. Hebel means uh, vapor. And his life was like a vapor. And in English, they changed the hay to a, and the process, they lost the meaning of the word. It's hevel. And from that comes hevel havalim, that uh, Solomon would repeat again and again, which means vanity of vanities. So even the attitude of vanity, uh, there is no substance to it. That's why it's called hevel. It's like vapor. It comes and goes. It's like a breath. You know, you breathe, and especially when it's cold outside, and you see that vapor coming out of your mouth, you can't touch it. He can hold on to it. It's nothing. There is no substance to it. It's meaningless. And that's what vanity is. Uh, when vanity enters into the mind of man, it's a total uh, nothingness. And yet people think that they are great in their own sight. And so she gave birth again to his son. And possibly, it's a possibility. I don't know that it is. It's a possibility that there were twins, where one was born after the other. And the reason why I say it's a possibility uh, which doesn't have to be so, it's just speculation here, because when you read in many other cases later on, you would always read, and she conceived and gave birth to a child. As in Genesis chapter 30, when uh, the wives of Jacob, the four wives, are, are uh, in the process of childbirth, in every single case of them almost, it says, 
and she conceived and gave birth to a child. In this case, it just says, and she added, and it's just a possibility. In either case, they developed a rivalry here between them. It seems to be from a very young age, maybe from the womb, like in the case of uh, Jacob and Esau. You know, the rivalry developed from the beginning. Uh, something was contrary. Abel uh, uh, was of one spirit and Cain of another spirit. And since we are from the beginning of life, and maybe it's a repetition in all this uh, proverbial uh, twin rivalry or sibling rivalry that we find between Cain and Abel, between Jacob and Esau, between Isaac and Ishmael. In this case, they were not twins, but they were brothers. And many other cases between Perez and Zerah. And both of them were, uh, were born with one conception and then were born right after the other. And they were twin brothers. Now, one came first, obviously, and then the, the other one came second. And so that's what you see there. Uh, sibling rivalry that haunted Cain for the rest of his life and produced evil consequences, obviously, as we should read about before. And so we read about them. And in the process, uh, actually in verse 2, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, one profession, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now Adam also is known as a tiller of the ground, as God in essence cursed him. Up to now, in essence, Adam was totally dependent on God. When he was hungry, he went to the tree and he picked up a fruit, or he went to the garden and picked up some vegetables. And that's what he did. Life was very natural, total dependence of God. He did not till the ground, he did not uh, sow the ground, he did not plant, he did not water, just like the beast of the field. They don't do any of that. They're totally dependent on God. And so, Adam was in that condition. But when he was cursed, now God told him, you're going to have not to work with your own hands. In the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. So he seems to be under that curse because of disobedience. And it's interesting that Cain followed in that direction, in the footsteps of his father. And so he too was assisting his father in that he was inclined in that direction. So he was a tiller of the ground, while Abel was a keeper of sheep. Now when you're a keeper of sheep, you're a shepherd. That's a totally different profession. You just take the sheep, you take them to, uh, to the field, and they eat grass. Uh, you're not really involved. You're not planting, you're not sowing, you're not watering, you're not doing anything. You're just totally dependent on God, and you're working with God. You're, in, the, in essence, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All they were supposed to do just to keep and dress the garden. But they didn't make anything grow themselves. They didn't plant, they didn't sow, they didn't water. And so we see these two different professions. Not that there is anything wrong with far being farmers. Uh, God made us ultimately to be farmers also, not only uh, uh, shepherds. But just interesting to see this total difference between the two, the two different professions. And you remember that David, that Christ, that Moses, they were all shepherds. They were called the shepherds of God. They were not the farmer of God, they were the shepherds. And the Lord is my shepherd, as David would say in uh, Psalm 23. That's a very interesting uh, reality that we see here from the beginning of time, which tells you again an awful lot. You see, when you get very intimately uh, deep into the into the Word of God, you get intimate, det intimate details about it, and far more than the surface, than meets the eye. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And so Christ is called the shepherd and not the farmer. And this is what you, where you find Abel. And that also develops rivalry. As you remember, let's say a hundred years ago, when there were many farmers in this country, and there were also many cowboys. The cowboys generally had a natural resentment against the farmers, and they put them down. We should not have done that, because both of them are necessary to each other. But essentially, a rivalry develops uh, around professions, and each one puts the other one down. At least in this case, Cain was doing it to Abel, not Abel to Cain. And so we read in verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. There is nothing wrong with that. Israel was supposed to bring uh, the first harvest, the first dough, the first of everything to God. That by itself uh, was nothing wrong with it. But obviously there is much more behind the scene that is happening here. And so if we know deeply the mind of God in his word, as, as we have a, an intimate knowledge of what we are reading and what is God is trying to convey to us, we realize there is much more to it than what we read. And about Abel we read in verse 4, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Fat is the most, uh, let's say, uh, expensive part of, of the animal. Uh, in other words, uh, the most say, coveted part of the animal. In other words, the best part of it. And so he brought the best of everything, of, mind you, of those things that God himself had created and is sustaining and is feeding and is taking care of. And so he's working in a very intimate relationship with God in this case. And he's giving him of his own. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, not only because of what he did, but because of the spirit that was in him and the obedience that was in him and the intimacy that he had with him and the respect and reverence that was there, and it was not on the part of Cain. And so there was a spiritual matter here. It was not just a matter of, of a sacrifice. And it's very important to God that when we bring a sacrifice to God, even if it is a sacrifice that is acceptable to Him, if our spirit is not right, either with Him or with our brother, God is not willing to accept our sacrifice. And that's why we read later on, when this God who now rejected the sacrifice of Cain, later on came in the flesh and spoke to his disciples, he told them, as you read in Matthew 5 and verses 28 and, uh, and uh, 29 or 23, 24, uh, he told them that when you bring a sacrifice to the, to the altar, if you remember at that point, you see, I already know that, but if you remember at that point that you have a problem with your own brother, you just leave the sacrifice right there by the altar because I'm not going to accept it from you. I'm going to reject it because of your attitude. And you go back and you reconcile to your brother. Because if you come before me when you hate your brother, you are a murderer. You see? And I'm not going to accept a sacrifice from a murderer. In other words, when you come to, to offer a sacrifice before me, you must do it with a clean heart, with total love. And you cannot hate your brother and love me. And you cannot love me and hate your brother. The two go together. And so he tells them, you forget about your sacrifice, you go reconcile to your brother, and then come back and offer it. And maybe there was a problem again here of Cain. With that rotten attitude that he had, spiritual problem that he had, thinking attitude that he had, not really having an intimate knowledge of God, and that God would never accept a sacrifice from him when he comes with an attitude like that. And the consequences tell us very plainly that he had a problem with his brother Abel. And because that was a consequence of the rejection of his sacrifice. 
And so he tells them, you go and you reconcile to your brother first, then you come back. And then in Matthew 9.13, we read, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he made that statement in relationship to the Pharisee and the publican that were in the temple. And the Pharisees, Pharisee come before God to offer him his sacrifice of praise, and the publican comes to God to offer him the sacrifice of repentance. And the Pharisee is putting down, having something against his brother, and he's not willing to reconcile to his brother, but he's hating him in his heart. And therefore God says, I do not accept your sacrifice, though you are righteous, and the publican was not. Yet because of your attitude and hatred toward your brother, I will not accept your, your sacrifice. And therefore he said that the other one, the publican, went out justified, but not the Pharisee. And that's why he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that's what he desired from Cain. And yet Cain thought, just because I bring you a sacrifice, everything should be okay. Well, people who know their God know better. It's not good enough just to go to services. It's not good enough just to bring tithes and offerings. It's not good enough to have good works and all those things. If you do not live in peace with your brother, all this is lawlessness and doesn't mean anything to God. It's important to do that. And there are too many people who are religious people, very devout religious people, who hate their own brothers and their own sisters. God does not accept any of that sacrifice. He just rejects it. And they are exactly in the same position of Cain. And they have to realize that. And so it's very important for us to understand that. In First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, God, in this case Peter is speaking to the husbands. He says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, according to an understanding in Hebrew that your prayers may not be hindered. You see? In other words, that your sacrifices of praise would not be hindered because God is not going to accept your sacrifices, your prayers, or whatever you do for God and in the name of God if you have animosity toward the one that you ought to love, whether it be your wife, your son, or anybody else. And here, in this example, Peter was just specifically talking about the wives. So people that have animosity and hatred to their mates, friends, anybody, their sacrifice, their prayers, their good deeds are not going to be accepted by God. And that's exactly where Cain finds himself here. And so in verse 6, we read uh, in verse 5, uh, But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Instead of finding out what wrong have I done, repenting of it, and then being acceptable before God, his reaction was a carnal one. In other words, people who already have hatred in their heart, they don't like to be corrected. They don't like to be rejected. They do not like to be in this position where the sacrifice is not accepted. In other words, they say, here I am, take me as I am. God doesn't function like that. He's not going to accept us as we are. It's not coming as you are. We have to first cleanse our minds and our hearts, sanctify ourselves, come before God with clean mind and heart, having nothing against our brother, our sister, anybody, and then we will be accepted before God. And so an awful lot of people all around the earth are worshipping God, praying to God, sacrificing to God, and it's all in vain. And it's, that's, that's very pathetic. And so that's his reaction. He's not willing to repent. He's not willing to understand what he had done wrong. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? 
Now, God is not rebuking Cain. God is still merciful to him because he knows that he has a spiritual battle with Satan himself. And he's been infested with that spirit. And so he's speaking to him, as later on you would read, uh, an instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy. That when you deal with people who are contrary to themselves, he says, in the spirit of meekness, reason with them. That maybe you can bring them to repentance. In other words, he was speaking the mind of God, and that's exactly what we see God doing here. You see, God never changes. He's consistent. And so when he inspires his, his people, his servants, his disciples and apostles to, to write, they basically write all the same thing. There is no difference between the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Uh, it's all the same mind, the same spirit. God never changes. The people are the ones that divided the two. And they are the ones who are in ignorance. And so he says to him, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? It's not that God doesn't know that, but he's trying to lead him, to make him understand. Look, examine your own self to see whether you are reprobate, to see whether you are wrong, to see whether you have done something that is not pleasing in my sight, and then things will go well. And so he says, if you do well, which means you did not do well, and that was a problem to begin with, neither with me, nor with your own brother, will you not be accepted? Because that's the way God is. If you really know me, you're not going to have a problem pleasing me. You see? And that's what I told when we read. Without faith, without knowledge of God, you cannot please God. So we must know God. We must believe that He is and that He, that he is a rewarder of those who do good. And Cain was not doing good and therefore God could not reward him by accepting his sacrifice. And so he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Of course you will. I will accept you. I will never reject anyone that is doing well. But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. That is, couches at the door in Hebrew. Uh, and it's, in other words, as a lion couches uh, for the prey, he's waiting for the prey to walk by, and he's going to roar, terrorize the prey, and then devour him. And in essence, he's describing the mind of Satan, the actions of Satan. And in specific, he's speaking about Satan here. At this point, we shall stop. And this is again Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions. The Bible has answers.